Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40. Created and hosted by me, journalist and author Sam Baker. This week, I'm quite literally sweating alongside a woman who turned a mini midlife crisis into award-winning success in her mid-40s with her debut novel, The Confessions of Franny Langton, Sarah Collins. You know, the response from booksellers and the individual stores, the displays, and I went around to see as many as I could, in particular that marvellous display at Waterstones Piccadilly, you know, mm. talk about moments to soak in, that really was one of the highlights for the, of the publication process for me. If that was me, I'd be putting my feet up and basking in my own reflected glory. But Sarah's more type A than that. She's also brilliantly outspoken about the power of women's anger the good and the bad of writing a book in middle age, cue backache, and why there should be no end to our magnificence. I'm here in the living room of the astonishingly successful debut author of Franny Langton. I was going to say Franny Collins then because I have conflated <laughs> the two completely. And I just have to say, it's absolutely boiling in here. <laughs> and uh, given the uh, the context of this podcast, that seems inappropriate. Sarah has a fan. She's very glamorous. Um, and I have a bit of paper. I turned the temperature up just so we could mimic the conditions of a hot flash <laughs> while we speak. So you didn't need to do that. I brought my <laughs> so Sarah, let's start by by talking about Franny and let's go right back to life pre-Franny. Yes. And how how that happened because really you've made the most astonishing career change in the last 10 years. Yes, astonishing and 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 successful and gratifying and it's funny that you started by conflating or almost conflating me with Franny because I feel as if that's happened even in my own mind, that I'm not sure I will ever separate my psyche from this book or this character because she has been so life-altering and life-defining for me. Um, but, you know, I, you know in, the, in the context of your podcast, I wrote Franny. I started writing her when I was well into my 40s and the novel was published when I was 45, so it's almost a kind of lifetime midpoint that has brought all of this about for me. And I think that there's something really rewarding and gratifying about that. Um, before I set about writing this or indeed any novel, I was a lawyer and I thought that was it for me. You know, I was a lawyer and a mother. I, I sort of defined myself very much in those terms. And I didn't, although I had this dream and I'd had this dream for a very long time of writing a novel and having one published I just didn't know how I would ever go about doing that. So you trained as a lawyer in the Cayman Islands? I trained as a lawyer in England so I qualified as a barrister but then went back to the Cayman Islands which is where I was brought up although I was born in Jamaica to a very Jamaican family um, we left we were forced to leave in uh, the late 70s after the election in 1976 when there was an eruption of political violence. 
So I grew up in the Cayman Islands, but then came to England for boarding school when I was 12 and essentially stayed all the way through pupillage. Um, but I was really homesick, so I went back to the Caribbean and worked as a lawyer, as a young lawyer and a young mum. And you had two kids and then you acquired three Yes, I did. I expe- we, we did a kind of Brady Bunch. I, I used to describe us as the interracial Brady Bunch back in the day. I, I married a Scotsman with three children and then we combined our families. Um, so I raised five children. As well as being a, <laughs> I a know. commercial lawyer, weren't you? Yes, yeah. uh, a litigator, uh, a private client litigator. So I really, it was a kind of bleak house life. I, you know, I spent a lot of my time involved in court proceedings where wealthy families were fighting over their estates. It was, you know, that was, a, I guess that was my nod to the literary, that much of the stuff I was doing could have come from the pages of Bleak House. Oh, all those lovely people. Yes. Yeah, There's a novel in it, you know, there yeah. may yet be a novel in it for me, I don't know. There's a novel in everything, um, I think. Yeah. yeah. Do you find people um, watch you a bit now? You know, when you when you I live with a novelist as well, and sometimes you think, "Oh my God, is that like this?" Better not be going in your book. Gonna, it's gonna end up there. Yes, I don't know. I haven't detected any weariness, but honestly, if my friends and family are sensible, they'd better start developing some barriers. Oh, so you, what prompted the? You know, you'd always wanted to be a writer, but what what made you decide that? 40? Yeah, at 40. I think it was about 40 when I applied for the Creative Writing Masters. There were a couple of things. Um, The most important, which I think anyone with children will relate to, is my children started growing up and getting the hell out of my house, you know, they, (laughs) which which did two things. It left me feeling really bereft because I had given up work sometime before that. I couldn't do both. And I think, you know, this is one of the things that has been, I've had to kind of arrive at a degree of painful honesty about this, because I think women are sold on this myth that mm. you can do both successfully. And for me, there was a bit of shame in admitting that I couldn't, you know, some people can, but I couldn't. I always felt I was either being a better mother or a better lawyer, but never the two at once. And so I didn't want to regret um you know, my children can, if they like, talk to their therapists about my yeah. mistakes, but I didn't want to be making any conscious or deliberate mistakes. And I knew that was one, so I had to give up work and try to devote my time to them. And I'm very glad I did. But when they, um, you know, they started going to uni and our youngest, who is now 17, started secondary school, I was left bereft because that had, for quite a few years, been my profession. And I'd brought my kind of type A, ambitious yeah. career woman, personality to it and so I really did have this feeling of what do I do now who am I how do I define myself that you know a perfect midlife crisis right at about 40 but the other thing that happened was a genuine bereavement which is that two of my very dear friends passed away they were similar age you know early 40s um, they were one in particular very artistic, um, one of the best dancers that I'd ever sort of come across, and she was the children's dance instructor as well. It really did hit me, this kind of idea which I'd always been aware of in theory but never felt viscerally, that if I didn't do what I had always wanted to do, I, you know, I would have that regret. What would that feel like, taking that regret um, with me to you know whenever my whenever my time came, I just I just thought it would be unbearable to know that I had never given it a shot, but I'd wanted it so much, and it really was that it was and those two things that happened very near to each other: the children moving off and losing my friends, and, and in fact the um, the novel is dedicated to them. They're they're named in the dedication. That's a, it's a huge thing isn't it because so many people I've spoken to who have had children have said that that moment when the last one goes is a it, it's a big it's a big deal oh my yeah. god it took me completely by surprise I now I don't know if this is my sort of public service but I do now and maybe maybe my friends who have toddlers are really um, frustrated by me but you know I'll I'll seize on friends with young children and say well they're two now but they won't be two forever they're going to be moving away and prepare yourself because it is such a you know I've seen people liken it to a kind of mini bereavement and it is the funny thing about having children is that you are constantly grieving the stages that you know it's both a celebration of their progress 
and a kind of feeling of loss for the child that you've lost, that you, you will never have your four-year-old again, you'll never have your 10-year-old again, and, you know, in a way that doesn't quite happen with adult, with relationships that are established and maintained between adults. Um, and so it's something that you really have to come to terms with as a mother. And I think it hit me, you know, I don't, I, I certainly was more dramatic about it, but I think it hit me harder than my husband. I, maybe because I was the one who had agreed to take on the main kind of caretaker role. Yeah, I'm not, I've still not recovered from it. I still look at them and say, you know, why are you adults? Where are my children gone? <laughs> so how old are they now? My eldest is 25 and I actually just got married in she December, married yeah. yeah, which was beautiful. And our youngest is 17. So then they, they kind of range. They're like a staircase. They go down, they go down in age from 25 to 17. So let's, before we get to all the high moments of the last year, how did you go about writing a book? I had no idea. And one of the things that used to stop me was I thought it was a very straightforward process. I don't know if this is the same kind of misconception that that many people have, but I thought you sat down and you started with chapter one and you just kept writing. And every day, you know, writing was as easy and pleasurable as reading. And then one day you got to the end and you sent it off and someone published it. And I was missing, of course, the really horrible, agonizing, painful part of the process, which is the craft. Um, And so I kind of, you know, like I do everything, I sort of set out deliberately to equip myself the best I could and to be very type A about it. And I researched part-time creative writing masters and went off and did one through the continuing education program at Cambridge, which was really useful because I couldn't do a full-time one, but that was low residency. So I could, we only had to be there, I think, four times a year and I could kind of work independently in between. Um, the novel was started on that program. It was I submitted the first fifteen thousand words for my thesis, and I also submitted the first fifteen thousand words to the Lucy Cavendish Prize, which I think really was the turning point for me. I was shortlisted for the Lucy Cavendish Prize. My agent Nell Andrew was one of the judges. She miraculously, and I still to this day do not believe it happened, offered me offered me representation on the strength of that really crappy 15,000 word draft which I then worked on for about two years afterwards um you know with a bit of feedback from her and then it then this kind of thing there's almost like this veil descends over it it's like the same veil that descended after I had my children which is it has kind of smoothed out how horrible the process was and also it's made it a bit mystical because I'm really not sure what happened there was just a lot of pain and suffering involved and then a beautiful baby came out at the end (laughs) but um you know huge amounts of trial and error and failure and self-doubt it actually was characterized more by self-doubt and by a desperate urge to give up on it than anything else you know I I would have bitten my arm off not to write that novel at some point. That's how fed up and absolutely frustrated I was with it. What kept you going at those points? Um, it, I, you know, it feels a little bit like an addiction to me. It does. It feels like a compulsion that you can't quite explain. And I think the compulsion is triggered by reading. Somehow you kind of, you know, I was such a bookworm and have such a love for books and an affinity for books and felt like writers were superheroes that I, I did have a, an almost uncontrollable urge to become a writer. And so that kept me going. There were like a series of pep talks I gave myself and one of them was you're writing about a black woman who wanted nothing more than to be a writer but couldn't be a writer simply because of her circumstances in the early 19th century. But you can be a writer. You've got a bloody agent. You're halfway through your bloody manuscript. You'd be not only a coward but disrespecting the the memory of people like her if you didn't give it a shot. And that was the kind of the sort of romantic, you know, how I dug myself out of the tunnel thing. The truth was that I just had that, I had that thing within grasp that I'd always wanted. And I would never have been able to live with myself if I didn't see it through. It was what I call an Eminem soundtrack moment. There are a few of those where I was reminded of the lyrics from his um, Lose Yourself. You know, you only get one shot, do not miss your chance. And that was it for me. So where did Franny come from? Um, 
it was a it was it was on the one hand a process of trial and error and I don't think she was complete until the end and it was on the other hand or the genesis anyway was a kind of lightning strike which is the sort of mystical thing you want so you know a lot of experimentation which didn't work for Franny because it's a very voice driven novel and her character came from the voice and I didn't get the voice straight away. I made lots of mistakes. I, I even started out writing this quite distant third, quite close third and then n- narrowed it down to having to work with her in the first person. That was the way I got to know her. I knew that I wanted, I've described her as this before, a Jamaican woman in Jane Austen territory. So I knew that I wanted it to be a kind of clash of those sensibilities as a way of exposing the hypocrisy of all of that civilized Austenian society. You know, that there was an underbelly propping all of that up of slavery and sin and addiction. And I also knew I wanted there to be a, a trial, a kind of double murder, a very gothic, dramatic Um, engine propelling the story and I wanted her to be accused of killing her employers because that would kind of allow me to think about the relationships within the house and the power and the powerlessness but I didn't really have her until I fiddled around a lot with how she was going to be arrested and brought out of the house and standing on the steps and there was going to be all this kind of gothic fog Um, but there was a moment after I'd done very many attempts at a first chapter where I got this one line and it was the, the first line that I actually kept intact in the book where she says, but I never would have done what they say I've done to Madame because I loved her. And for me, that was the syntax of the novel and the character. You know, this idea, to me anyway, it enca- encapsulates this idea of willful submission Um, And I've spoken before of how writing her then felt a bit like building up this sense of strong inner resistance, which um, I compare to The Handmaid's Tale or even Alias Grace. It's a very Margaret Atwood kind of style of exploring the rage of a female protagonist who isn't quite free to express it. And that was it for me. I latched onto it, that feeling of simmering rage. And I wanted to kind of sustain that through the novel. What was the moment, do you think, when you realised that Franny was not going to just be a thing for you, that she was going to be something really important for thousands and thousands of people? I think that is still sinking in, in a way. It's a really surreal experience, and it's very difficult to explain how... It affects you. You know, it's a moment that is constantly being reinforced. But maybe I had the first inkling of it when my agent sent the novel out on submission and the editors who ended up acquiring it came back and said how it had affected them because they were the first people outside of that small inner circle, essentially me, my husband and my agent who had read it. Um, You know, and my agent, of course, was an independent reader, but I also felt like um, she had something invested in it along with me. And thank God she did, because she was hugely influential in shaping the manuscript. But these were people who did not have skin in the game. You know, they were truly independent. And that was when I realized there there was a lot of interest very quickly after we sent the novel out. I realized it was striking a chord with these incredibly experienced readers. Perhaps it would strike a chord with the market. But then you never know and you can never hope and you can never guarantee. Um, So then stuff like people showing up to see me talk and, you know, in this in the signing line, people saying how much it meant to them or how much they loved it. And it's not just... Because, of course, I love the fact that the book, if it has done something different, it has positioned a kind of black protagonist where we aren't used to seeing them. But I also equally love people saying it was a really good page turner. It kept me up at night. I, you know, I just wanted to know how the story ended because I didn't want to just be trying to craft some kind of message. I think novels are about telling stories and I always love a novel for plot first. I'm not ashamed to say it. And I really wanted to deliver that kind of, I have to stay up and find out how this ends feeling with my own. I mean, it's beautifully written. I mean, it's just won the Costa and it kind of, it has to do both those things. Yeah. To win the Costa, yes. to be beautifully written, but also a crowd pleaser yeah. to a certain extent so you won the Costa you were a Richton Judy I think were you? No, no I, you I Waterstones Book of the Month which is I guess kind of, of similar <laughs> it, that was a great month Different. that was August 
um, last year. And, and, yeah, you... and didn't want August to end. It was uh, wonderful. It was like being... It was like being a bride or something, you know, being the centre of attention. You know, the response from booksellers and the individual stores, the displays, and I went around to see as many as I could, in particular that marvellous display at Waterstones Piccadilly. You know, mm. talk about moments to soak in. That really was one of the highlights for the, of the publication process for me. And amazing quotes from Margaret Atwood, Bernadine Evaristo, Oprah. yes. Yes, I, mean, I know. It's just like if you had written a script for the perfect experience with your first novel, an editor would have gone, oh no, that's t- 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 <laughs> t- <laughs> too unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah, but you know, I feel like I've got a duty to say it isn't all, you know, those are the wonderful high points, but there are low moments. There are still moments of self-doubt. I said very early on, because people always, aspiring writers in particular, always want to know how do you handle rejection? And it will seem as if I haven't had to experience any because I got so lucky with my agent and my editors and all the rest of it. But, you know, there also is a sense in which for example, I didn't get some reviews that I wanted in some publications that I really had dreamt about, um, you know, didn't make certain bestseller lists. So there's a sense in which you're still always adjusting. You know, I joke about this a lot with writer friends that the more you get, the more you want. And you're the one in control of making sure your appetite for all of that doesn't become monstrous, that you have to kind of protect that part of you that is doing it just because you love books and you love the um, the act of storytelling and want to be part of that because it's an industry as well and you can get swept away with the accolades and the keeping track of sales and all the rest of it um, and it's important to enjoy it but not to live for it you know not all of the dreams come true as wonderful as it looks from the outside there are still things you have to get used to just not having or not coming your way and I'm sure it's the same for everyone no matter how successful they are well, I think that that's the problem, isn't it? If you believe the good, you've got to believe the yeah, bad too. Yeah. So you have to kind of make yeah. a decision. You've got to find your that. own middle ground and kind of preserve your own healthy outlook about things because it's a it's a profession that it's very easy to get swept up and swept away and caught up by the positive and the negative. You've got to kind of keep your own middle ground. So how is how is writing the second one? <laughs> See, speaking of low points, <laughs> yes. because you feel as if, oh, I've cracked it. I know how to do this. I know how to do this. I've done it so successfully. It will be fine. And then you realise you're starting almost from zero with another horrible draft and not knowing where it's going. And, you know, talk about wrestling with voice. That is exactly what I'm doing now throwing things away I posted this thing on Instagram a couple of weeks ago because it really spoke to me Um, and it was the idea that um, poets and scientists work in a similar way because we both have to be willing to waste effort and it is so true there are very few professions that demand that you waste effort which is psychologically a really difficult thing to get your head around. So I've been spending weeks, if not months, just going down blind alleys and making wrong turns and throwing things away, trying to get to that point again where the voice of this novel clicks for me. And I'm not sure that it's happened yet, but it better bloody well happen soon because my agent wants some pages. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm interested in the timing of it all for you mm. because the notion of the shift is my theory that there's a shift in women's lives that happens in their 40s through 50s where things change and it does seem to me a big coincidence that a lot there's always a lot of a change yes. in women's lives around about that time and you mm. made a really a big career change yeah. at your in your in your mid 40s mm-hmm. do you think the change is built into women You know, I think the change is probably built into men as well, but women are programmed to become aware of the change and that is the difference. It forces a kind of introspection that is so enormously useful and I don't see the same in my sort of male friends or family members Um, because we have all of these biological reminders that we're reaching what we hope will be a midpoint if we're lucky enough to live long lives. And I think because, you know, at least in my case, for women who, for women who have children, if you are the main caretaker, and unfortunately that still is still skewed mm. um, that way, because the children leaving also forces you, forces a degree of introspection. We just get forced to examine where we are, what we're happy with, what we're not happy with. We get reminded that the clock is ticking in much more um, hot, flashy ways. Yes. <laughs> you know, it it kind of feels almost like an emergency. Like I've got to take control of my life and myself and make sure I make myself happy. Make sure I do the things I want to do and make sure that I take a kind of deliberate approach towards trying to be fulfilled that's how it felt for me and it did feel I really wish I had known this back in my 20s because I used to always feel afraid of 40 you know Mm. I felt a huge sense of even turning 30 was depressing I remember how miserable I felt on my 30th birthday and I wish I had known back then that actually your 40s are going to be your best decade even if you do get a little bit overheated at times they are going to be your best decade because It's going to be the first time in your life where you refuse to take any crap and where you kind of start putting yourself first and where you also stop worrying so much about what other people think about you because you're putting yourself first. Um, and I, you know, I've never felt so liberated or empowered as I as I did since. And it wasn't really forty; it's kind of the beginning of a process. It gets better every year, but I will confess, I am now feeling a little, little bit circumspect about turning 50 because I'm like well is that going to be the end like when is the end is certainly this good feeling isn't going to last so well there was some research recently wasn't there that was like 47 is meant to be the worst year yeah and that's the year I'm in (laughs) uphill all the way I I would definitely agree with that I was uh, I didn't have a big party to celebrate 50 or anything like that it's like oh I hate my own parties other people's parties are fine but I actually think it's it's been better since. Yeah. It's been great since, I think. Also, you know, I keep I have kept saying, because um, I get asked this a lot, that I don't think there's been a better time to be a black author in publishing. But I also think there has never been a better time to be a woman turning 50 because, you know, I do have this habit of looking around for icons and role models. And there are so many. I realise that the women I admire, the women I think are darn attractive, the women I want to be like are, you know, all 50 or over. Um, you know, I find myself kind of drooling over pictures of J-Lo on a stripper pole or or um, Gillian Anderson in her pantsuits and, you know, yeah. I, and Helen Mirren and people, people I really want to be. You know, there are some gorgeous, wonderful, up-and-coming 20 and 30-year-olds and I admire them, but the people I really want to be are all age-appropriate for me. They're, the, they're people who are on the horizon and I look at that as my model for ageing. I want to age that way where, you know, I can still... I can still kind of dance the night away. I can still wear what I want to wear. Um, and I can feel like I am still beginning new things. So it's a great time to start a new career as well, I think. Do you think that's improving? I mean, there's a. I can't work out whether it's just because I am now, you know, 50 plus, that I can suddenly see all these women doing really cool things, not yeah. going anywhere, or whether 
it's shifted in the last it few has years. shifted it feels like yeah it. I think it has shifted um, because I think we have refused to go quietly mm. and I think also it's because maybe this is the generation that was sort of programmed to put career either first or equal with other things mm. and to put themselves either equal or first um, because it d just didn't happen to that extent before then and so now we're seeing that you know those women who grew up that way and started that way are now you know coming into the sort of 40s 50s and 60s and of course we're going to live like life isn't over because that is exactly how we've been programmed that you know it's supposed to just be getting better um and, you know continuing even to Jane Fonda is my icon for mm -hmm. the 80s I want to be 82 like Jane Fonda's 82 there should be no end to our magnificence that's my new mantra <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to get a t-shirt move that on there should be no end <laughs> yes, to our magnificence yes, yeah. whether or not people tolerate more visibility we are certainly insisting on more visibility and by mm. we I mean women over 40 that in all kinds of walks of life so I'm not sure that we had kind of sex symbols who were over 50 before, and now we do. Um, and, you know, a lot of people say to me in the publishing industry, for example, that there are so many women just starting out as writers in their 40s. Um, and that makes sense to me because if you've had to devote time to trying to earn a living or raise some children, mm. that is when you're going to be free to start out. I feel like we're in a place now where we can define what visibility is too because visibility when you're younger, when you're a younger woman is very much defined by what society says it is which is you can be visible if you're hot Yes. but it, if you're not, forget it whereas now I think there's a lot of you know women yes, they're attractive I mean, yes, J-Lo her body's her job mm. you know, I was never going to look like her when I was 20 and I'm not going to look like her now but I think there are so many different women doing different things their own way. Yeah. But, you know, I think it's positive across the board. I think that has shifted for young women as well. I, I love the fact that we embrace all types of bodies now, presenting themselves in all kinds of ways. That wasn't the case when I was growing up. Mm. You know, you had to look like um, whoever the sort of supermodels were, Cheryl Teagues or, you know, the people that were always on the covers back then. Um that but it, you know but I think for me body positivity means I like being fit I like wearing pantsuits I, you know I like the fact that JLo is fit but I also think that um, we shouldn't be defined by you know that fitness mm. or beauty shouldn't be the sort of definition of womanhood and what I really love and I see this with my daughters as well is that um, that they are not putting up with that kind of bullshit that mm. you know that it's this kind of contradiction because. I worry sometimes that social media means people feel like they have to look a certain way because everyone looks beautiful on social media. But if you really talk to younger women now, they get it in ways that we didn't get. Um, many of them do. They get that we can embrace all kinds of body types. You know, one of the things that really struck me when I was working with a whole bunch of millennial women is that because I, I think... You know, when I was starting out my career in the 80s as a kind of a white working class state school kid, coming through, getting a job in the media, I just felt like so unbelievably lucky. Mm -hmm. And the people that I knew who did come from the same background as me were so unbelievably lucky. We put up with untold shit. Yes. And I remember when Me Too was happening and I was talking to the girls who worked on the pool... They just couldn't believe it. Yeah, they won't put up and, with it. And they, they're right. Yes. They are absolutely yes. right. And that's kind of what made me start to think about the shift was like, why should we wait for millennial women to come through and go, why is this menopause shit? I'm not putting up with it. <laughs> yeah. like, you know, we can't exactly. wait for them to do it. That will be too right. late for us. We've got to do it ourselves. Yeah. You know. Hopefully they will have great examples you know talking about visibility people didn't used to speak about this you know people are people you know it's, I remember and I'm sure you do as well the kind of experience of your first period and how you almost gather around with your friends and you're excited and who's got it first mm. and how does it feel and you know how are we different but there is not that same sense when you're coming to the end of your periods is there and um it seems to me like people never used to speak about it before that you know it was kind of not something to be celebrated 
And as with every stage of my life, I want approaching that. I want to just try not to be that kind of circumspect about it. It's just another thing. It's another kind yeah. of biological thing that is going to happen. It happens to half it will... the population. Exactly. Slightly more. Yeah. And, and you know, I know that this generation, because they are much more open and empowered and informed than we were, that when it when it is their turn, it's going to probably be something to celebrate. There will be menopause parties, perhaps. I don't know. But that is the way to do we it, isn't it? start that. <laughs> yeah. you know, because there should be a celebration. If you think there are no... There's no other life milestone that doesn't get a party. Yeah. yeah. Nothing yeah. Re- else. It's a kind of retirement in a way, isn't it? Everything I'm gets retiring a party. my uterus. Yeah. <laughs> I will not yeah, be having it. It doesn't mean any. the rest of me doesn't function. <laughs> yeah. It's always been looked at as almost like a little death. Yeah. Instead of actually it's the opening of a whole new thing. Yeah. You know, whether or not you had children, I didn't you had loads no, you, had two, you, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you, know, you can say still... it I had too many <laughs> no I have I had five yeah. I, I, I'm always careful to say I do it you know all of the kids are mine yeah. because um I've raised yes. them all so yeah, yeah. I, I definitely have five children it's like just because that that yes that bit is finished and the bit of society that thinks the women are only useful in that context well we don't care about them anyway. Yeah. Um, but there's a whole new opportunity now. Yeah. And I, you know what? I don't know if this is naive or Pollyanna-ish of me, but I don't really see that bit of society. First of all, I don't feel like an older woman. I'm not sure what an older woman is supposed no. to feel like or look like, but I refuse to feel or look like that. Yeah. There's a sense in which I think we all feel internally ageless. It's certainly true mm. for me. I do not feel any different inside than I did 10 or 15 years ago and I'm you know trying my hardest not to feel any different outside as well um how old do you feel what's your internal oh usually 21 (laughs) honestly usually 21 um it kind of takes me by surprise when I have to act my age in certain circumstances one of the great things about not being a lawyer anymore is you know sometimes I just don't feel like having that gravitas and if I don't Mm. want to have it I don't have to have it I do not have all of the answers and I'm still figuring life out in many ways um but I so I don't see that and maybe it's because I'm turning a blind eye to it I you know I, I think that society is actually um, much less judgmental of older women now and certainly mm. the people I interact with are much less judgmental um, I haven't felt it I haven't felt it a minute in this new career for example that there has been any kind of pushback in the sense that I'm too old to be doing any of it, it, it quite the opposite um, so maybe I'm lucky or maybe things are different yeah maybe there I think I mean I think things are proving, improving but also I think probably in the book industry things are yeah are getting cranked up yeah. a bit did you have any idea about did your mum talk to you about menopause did you know when your mum was going through it anything like that no i didn't i did not i may now that i look back on it because i have had a few of the same experiences i might with hindsight recognize what she was doing if she was fanning herself or something like that but it wasn't something that we ever spoke about it would have been nice, I think, to have some kind of preparation. But also, I think um, it's not just that, well, my mom didn't. I don't know if mothers generally do, but society doesn't. So it's not like you get, you know, you sort of learn by osmosis about all kinds of things that happen to women, including menstruation and childbirth, in a way that I don't think you learn by osmosis about what to happen when you're perimenopausal or menopausal, what will happen. Um, and so I think we could do better at that generally. I think it's to do with the fact that it's been, oh, something you didn't really want to admit because it meant you were that old. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So mine kicked in from about mid-40s. And um, I couldn't find a friend, an older older friends than me, I couldn't find anyone who'd admit to having had it. Yeah. And they were all a bit like, oh, you know, most people are going through it and they don't know. It actually took me by surprise because things, a lot of things stay the same and you might still be having periods, for example, but you are experiencing symptoms. And I actually remember having, I can't remember what it was exactly, but I mentioned it to my doctor and he said, oh, well, it might be because you're perimenopausal. And I thought, what? It was the same thing that happened when I think I I went in with some kind of joint complaint in my early 40s and the doctor said, oh, that might be a touch of arthritis. And I thought, what? You know, it's those, those words that you never think will ever be applied to you. And then you think, oh, that's what this might be. It does kind of take you by surprise. And then, you know, there could be a long process, 
for some people it could be, literally be five or ten years um, yeah, when you're having the ups and downs and the symptoms and you don't really know that you are so I now smile because I think there are a few of my friends who are having a few of the symptoms but don't realize that that's yeah. what it is and won't admit that that's what it is um, and I think well just wait one day someone will say that to you yeah. <laughs> one day a doctor will say well that just might be perimenopause and you will be very very gobsmacked yeah. <laughs> how are your rage levels um, fine, because I got all of my rage out onto the page. All of my rage filtered right through Franny Langton and I, I don't have to express any of it. I actually was much angrier in my 30s when I was trying to juggle all of those impossible things. You know, I was much more easily frustrated with a much shorter fuse when um, I was, you know, being a law firm partner and a mother of five and trying to have some kind of life for myself all at once. Um, now I think my moods are characterized by a sense of real happiness and kind of, you know, emerging self-confidence. It's not there, but it's getting there and contentment. So I do not have any kind of, no, I mean, okay, I, my husband will, my husband will disagree with this. I may have some mood swings, but they're not, they're not, they're not extreme or erratic. <laughs> but you're very glowy and not in a hot flush way. So. Yeah, I feel happy. I do. I feel yeah. like this has been my best decade yet. Um, but that just really encourages me to try to make the next one better. It's a, it's a nice, and let me just say, it isn't all wonderful. I don't like wrinkles. You know, for example, I have this kind of thing between my eyebrows and I'm always saying to people, I've been sort of boring people about, oh, should I get Botox? Should I not? Should I get, I don't like wrinkles. So it's not like everything about aging is wonderful, but it is nice to feel like it's something to be looked, you know, to I'm look forward to. I'm looking at this thing. I do. I have the 11 lines. It's tiny. It's <laughs> tiny. Honestly, it seems like a real it. groove. Whenever I look at pictures of myself, I think, oh my goodness, it's like my face has been Screw hacked into. Screw forehead for me. Do you see what I mean? No. <laughs> well, instead of getting Botox, I'll just get you to come over every morning and say, it's all in your head. You can just record it and you can play it back to you. It is, honestly, you've got so few wrinkles. But just, I don't know, how do you feel about that whole, the whole anti-aging thing and all that? I mean, I'm glad it's available for people who need it because I can see why, you know, uh, the physical changes are something to to kind of accommodate mentally right so like for the first time this groove appeared it was a it was a little bit of a crisis for this me imaginary groove. you look at your face and it's not your face and so I can see why some people want it but I have decided for now to just welcome my face in whatever form and shape it chooses to arrive in the morning and um, and not worry about it too much <laughs> they're so tiny and there's nothing else either I'm like I'm really peering now at Sarah's face <laughs> Going, well, I want, I want to see... I want like, to move in like, with you so you can give me this pep talk every morning. Oh, honestly, yes, and talk about the lines around the mouth as well. Oh, but so what I try to say to myself so is this old. shows where you've been laughing and where you've been concentrating. I'm short-sighted, so I frown while I concentrate. And so there's nothing I can do about having the kind of badges of that all over my face now. I'm going to screw my forehead up really a lot so you can, <laughs> you can see that you You don't have them any. at all, <laughs> and I do. But thank you for oh. thank you for trying to talk me out of the Botox. <laughs> No, you do have one half Botox, you have it, but I don't know where you would put it. <laughs> Crazy person. Before we went off onto Botox, I did want to talk to you a bit more about women's anger. Yeah. What What is it, do you think, that is so scary to people about angry women? Angry women refuse to accept their circumstances. It's as simple as that. Angry women are not docile and they are not, um, they cannot be contained and they won't accept what you tell them about the limits of their existence. And actually that reminds me of the quintessential angry woman for me who was Jane Eyre, who was a big influence on my novel. You know, the, mm -hmm. um, the thing that kind of propelled Jane to demand more than everyone around her thought she was worth was anger. It was, you know, the sense that she had been treated unjustly and she wasn't going to put up with it. And I think she's a real model for womanhood. I think that's one of the reasons I related to that book in my teenage years, because I've described it in a thing I wrote about bad women in literature as um, being a kind of rallying cry for the badges of my own powerlessness, you know, child, black, from a small island, um, female, you know, all the things that the world seems to think should count against you or mean you won't amount to something 
special or extraordinary. Anger is a really useful motivating tool for growing beyond everyone else's small-minded opinions of what women can, can achieve. And that is why it is so threatening. And I think it may be the most useful tool we have. So because it's threatening, people have developed all kinds of prejudices about it, including women. We've internalized the prejudice. One being that anger is just close kin to hysteria mm. and it's a kind of madness and it gets nothing done. But that's not true. Think about the advances that women have made and the advances that any disenfranchised group of people have made. And one of the big things motivating it has been anger. It's been that kind of resistance that gets things done. So I really think that anger and also resilience are two of the most powerful things I find myself with at yes. this point yes. in my life. The fact that you know that you can survive having children, not having children, yes. losing people close to you, you know, brushes with death yourself, losing jobs, homes, relationships, and you're still here. Yes. And I think that's really... It's not fair to say it's, it's a female trait more than men, but I think you see a great many older, resilient women and that you somehow stand taller than you did before yes that's a good way of putting it it's interesting someone I spoke to said she felt that she now had a, a purposeful energy mm. which I really loved I just thought that's yeah I'm not I, I probably couldn't do an all-nighter anymore but I don't have no energy yes it's just directed yes and it's directed in a way that prioritizes your own well-being if you're lucky yes. that's the purposefulness it's very stabilizing. Have you been, have you always been quite good at thinking about what you need and looking after yourself? Oh, God, no, no. In fact, I have always been really terrible at it. And I've always um, worked too hard, burned myself out, um, been far too willing to define my own self-worth by what other people think of me. It took me a very long time. I and mean, that is still a work in progress, but it is much, much better. And it took me a very long time to even learn the tools for changing that for myself. And part of it was getting older because the things that seemed overwhelmingly important when I was 20-something just don't anymore, you know, like having a few extra pounds or, um, you know, maybe not having, the, you know, having this <laughs> 11 line between my brows, <laughs> you know, all the things that would have been a kind of crisis before you realize it just you just pales into perspective because you've been through some stuff that shows you what's really important um and what's really a crisis and what's not i've just got a few questions that i'm going to ask you which are questions that i always ask at the end okay firstly recommend a book well so recommended book published from the last year i'd say Anything. such a fun age by kylie reed recommended right. book Every woman should read. I'm going to go back to the one I um, just talked about earlier, which is Jane Eyre, which is my, you know, it's that, it is that rallying cry. Um, I think every young woman should read it. I know it's a classic and so many young people are put off by it. But if you just think of the spirit, think of the kind of pulse of anger that is threaded through that book, that's what you connect with. And that's what's so useful, I think. So that's why I'd recommend it. I'd recommend that universally. What one thing would you tell younger women? I think it would be, it gets better. It gets <laughs> better and better if you allow it. If you live very consciously, if you absorb the lessons life has for you, if you hold on, talking about resilience, if you hold on, that it can get better. You can find a lot of strength in getting older and a lot of power in that. I think that it gets better if you let it. Yes. That's really good. Yeah. I'm sure this is like some kind of cliche, but be the protagonist of your own story. Someone has said that before, but it's so true. Yeah. Decide what you want. Make plans for yourself. Do not be apologetic about it. Be very deliberate and organized in trying to make your life something that you can be proud of, but also happy in, you know, very important. What would your superpower be? Serious, it would probably be... Um, I mean, it's a cliche, but I think I would really like to fly. What would you do with your flying? 
I'd travel. I'd travel in a way that doesn't involve having to take my shoes off and wander yeah. through security <laughs> in my socks. Doesn't involve airports. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> who are the older women role models who inspire you? Um, my all-time uh, role model, not just as an author but in life, was Toni Morrison. And I think it's because for me, she's one of the most badass of badass women. You know, I've, I've, I've sort of sometimes compulsively watched Toni Morrison interviews on YouTube because she handles people with such quick intelligence. But also there's that kind of um, confidence in herself, which it can't be feigned. She was supremely confident in herself and her abilities and who she was, and she just did not suffer fools. She must have been inc- incredibly special to have that when she did at a time when there would have been no messages telling her that she could that she was mm. hot shit you know that here is this black woman who is going to conquer the world of literature you know it's easy enough for black women now because we have tony morrison but who did tony morrison have um on the kind of level same level as her she did it almost without example of course there were precursors but they did not achieve what she achieved um, and so I am in awe of and try to emulate that that self-confidence that she had. And last one, how many fucks do you give? <laughs> it varies between too many and absolutely zero. <laughs> and I'm trying to get it down to a healthy absolute zero. <laughs> That is a brilliant answer and probably true for most people, yeah, I think. If we're honest. <laughs> Thank you, Sarah. You've been absolutely brilliant. And if you find that mythical £10 loser, <laughs> tell me how. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to patent it and sell it. <laughs> Thank you, Sam. Thank you for listening. I'd love to hear your feedback. You can reach me on Twitter at Sam Baker and Instagram at the other Sam Baker using the hashtag The Shift. You can hear a new episode of The Shift each week on Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do rate and subscribe, because it really does help other people find us. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.